to talk about Joseph this morning. <clears throat> and, you know, one of the indications that the, uh, the Bible is true is that it doesn't cover up the sins of the big guys. And that's so opposite to the world because all the world's leaders work very actively to rewrite history to show only their triumphs. They are very concerned about their public image, uh, what it will look like in the press, how it will look there, and they make every effort to cover up their weaknesses. But the Bible just tells it as it is. And that's the mark of truth for me. Sadly, as you look at those biblical heroes, there are only a couple of them who come up smelling like roses, aren't there? You've got Daniel, he's very squeaky clean. You've got Samuel, who's clean, but his kids aren't. You've got Caleb, my personal hero, who goes off to conquer the promised land, his part when he's in his 80s. Yes, go, you magnificent 80s. <laughs> but one of the standouts really is Joseph. So let's pray and look into his life. Lord, as we look at Joseph this morning, we pray that we may learn from him how to be faithful no matter what life throws against us. Amen. He did have a complicated family situation. I encountered this probably first time in real life when I was teaching at Goldfields Baptist College and um, there was Max who was a bit unsettled, shall we say. Uh, he had, Max had two brothers. One was from his dad and another woman and the other was from his mum and another man. He had a complicated situation. Well, what about Joseph? He has 11 brothers from his own mum and three other stepmums. It's complicated. Now, just out of those four ladies, Joseph's mum is the one most loved. And Joseph was also born as a wonderful present in his dad's old age. And so Joseph, in that complicated situation, is the one who gets the most love from father and mother. And we see that in Genesis 37. We'll be round about there most of the time. But it's such a big story, we, we, we can't do dig too deep in any parts of it. But in Genesis 37 verse 3, Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he'd been born to him in his old age and then he made an ornate robe for him. And some fancy, fanciful artistic people have called it a technicolor, technicolor dream coat. And as I was thinking about that, I thought, who actually knows what Technicolor is? Technicolor, for those who are old enough, was when colour first came in the movies. They had this thing, oh, made in Technicolor. Well, I don't think this was as advanced as that. But the fact he was so obviously daddy's favourite boy is shown very vividly by what he wore, an ornate robe, a coat of colours. Now, let's get a comparison. What is that coat? What's the significance of that? We'll peek into 2 Samuel 13, verse 18. And it, we'll see that King David's daughter Tamar wore such a, a garment too. She was wearing an ornate robe. For this was the kind of garment 
the virgin daughters of the king wore. And so you see there's a strong association with royalty in this type of coat that he's been given. Because in those days, only royalty could really afford to put colour in the clothes. So it was pretty drab back then. And so we've got a complicated family situation. And we've got Joseph with a very sheltered little nook in there. The one who's getting the most love from the parents, one who's getting very obvious preferential treatment. And I think for Joseph, he's really had a good start in life, hasn't he? He's got a really great start in life. Uh, probably the best you can get. And then he gets a direct vision from the Lord. Now that's exciting. Genesis 37, something about the future, verse 7, we were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and it stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. And in verse 9, and listen, he said, I had another dream and this time the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. Now, I think if you're a kid, young man, and you get a direct revelation from God, that's pretty exciting, isn't it? And, and to this point, I identify quite strongly with Joseph too, because I have to confess that I was, when I was a prefect in grade seven primary school, I was one of those very painfully correct little boys, you know, the goody goodies, who went out of their way to make sure the rules were exactly followed. Now, you don't believe that about me, of course, but it was true back in those days. I was just simply naive. I was keen to do the right thing just totally unaware of how that created resentment in others. And I see that at this point in Joseph too, just is so excited that God's vividly shown him something in his dream about what the future's gonna be, and just blissfully ignorant of what he had in that complicated family, which was a position of privilege, didn't he? He had a position of privilege there. He was just ignorant of that, he didn't consider the implications of sharing the message with his brothers and his parents, and, and he was just unaware of how doing that might have created resentment. And he might have been blind at this point to what his brothers really thought about him. What did they really think? Genesis 37 verse 4, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him. They couldn't speak a kind word to him. And I wonder what's going on in Joseph when the penny drops, when he experiences the reality of his brother's reaction to his dream and experiences for the first time a massive pushback. Let's go on in verse 5 of Genesis 37. Joseph had a dream and when he talked to his brothers, they hated him all the more, and his brother said, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he said. And it wasn't just his brothers. Even his dad was a bit shaky here. In verse 10, when he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him. Said, What's this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come down and bow to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him. But his father sort of kept the matter in mind, tucked it away in the back of his mind. 
And so now Joseph's going to have a change, a transition. It's going to start a procession, a series of reversals for this guy who's grown up in this position of privilege. We're going to see that his brothers come in within a hair's breadth of actually killing him. And instead they sell him. They sell him off to Ishmaelites who take him to Egypt and they sell him on again from there. And he gets bought by a captain of Pharaoh's bodyguard, an important guy, and thrown into prison after a while, wrongly accused of adultery. And he languishes there in prison and there's no indication that it's just a three-year sentence or a ten-year sentence. And so he moves from a position of favour to the lowliest of the lows, from a favoured son to a powerless slave. And as we consider the meaning of all that, as we consider the meaning in this story, and the story does eventually turn around again, all the reversals are overcome, and ends with the dreams being fulfilled, we need to consider the bigger picture. And we need to place Joseph's story within the bigger promises which were made years before to his ancestor Abraham. Because it would be very easy for us this morning just to say, oh, well, let's look at what we learned for our personal discipleship here. You know, well, Joseph, where he really handled life, whatever it threw at him, he was responsibly faced every challenge so well that people just recognised his talent. They promoted him to the top dog in every time. We could just stay with these little thoughts for us, how his faith in God's promises obviously sustained him, no matter what the circumstance looked like, because he had this vivid dream, remember? We would have carried that through. There's a bigger picture than this. And it's God's plan for the entire human race. And that's quite humbling because Joseph has then shown only to be a small but an important, pivotal part of a bigger story. So let's go back and just see where it starts in Genesis 15. Genesis 15, verse 12. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And that's just a side note here, you know, when you get into a worship experience and you feel close to God, this is just one indication. Sometimes when you're close to God, sometimes it's more like a thick and a dreadful darkness. And yes, that's important. In there God is. And then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they'll be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they'll come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So have you ever thought about the fact that Abram, he was promised descendants, he was promised the land, he was promised a covenant, but he lived in tents in a foreign land until the day he died. He saw a few descendants and he wandered around the promised land without owning it. But mostly he lived by faith in the promises that he'd received. 
And I was staggered to see in this little section the time span built into the fulfilment of God's promise to Abraham. Sure, your descendants are going to get this new country, but there's going to be a diversion just for 400 years. 400 years. Look at the significance of that. We grumble when God hasn't answered our prayers almost immediately. Oh, we want to see God revive our town, our state, our nation, right now or at least by this time next year. And how self-absorbed can we be that we demand, God, show yourself, perform a miracle, prove you're real to us. 400-year diversion. How long have we been in Australia? Europeans, 200? You're getting a sense of a bigger picture here, of a long-range plan, a plan which spans centuries. And I've just really amazed how privileged we are to be at this part of the plan at this period of history to have enjoyed the fruit of nearly 2,000 years or more of God working a plan through humanity to make a way for people to be able to spend eternity with him and God's long-range plan to save mankind starts with Abraham goes through Isaac Jacob 12 tribes of Israel descendants of Judah you follow that line through to Jesus a long-range plan to get to Jesus, the saviour of the world. We have a privilege of living in a time in world history which is near the end of God's plan, the time between when he made provision for salvation so that anyone who comes in faith uh, can be saved before he returns to judge the living and the dead, and today we can know and participate in God's final expression of salvation, that God sent his son, Jesus, to live as a human being, to die as a sacrifice for all the sins of the world, so that whoever believes in Jesus might have eternal life through faith in him. And the big picture of all human history, big picture of all human history, is about, is it's about whether or not you and I believe in Jesus. That's what history is about, to provide a way for people to be reinstated with God, friends again with God. It's not about our career. It's not about our income. It's about our salvation. God created this whole universe. He sustains it. He's in it. He's through it. And he loves what he created, which is, includes you and me. And he wants to spend eternity with us, but he can't do it unless that, that stain of our willful independence, our willful ignoring of God, our willful rebellion at times, and our indifference to God, indifference to God until that's dealt with. And so we've got to get over ourselves a bit because God has been frying bigger fish than just us forever. And even a great man like Joseph is just another link in that chain. And so if we humble ourselves and ask for forgiveness for seeing life only from our own perspective, uh, for not understanding, we wouldn't even have breath in our lungs unless God created breath and lungs. And we need to tune into the massive salvation story we see in God's word.
so we can find where we fit in, where our part of it is. So anyway, back to the story of Joseph. You know, one of the objections people of the world have to the Old Testament God is all the killing which went on when the Israelites eventually go in and conquer their promised land. And they say, why would a just God do this? Well, let's look at Genesis 15. Verse 16, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. The sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. The Amorites, the Canaanites, who occupied the promised land. More than 400 years before they get turfed out, God is saying they're on a downward spiral and they're going to hit the bottom in 400 years' time and they are going to need to be judged. Remember, this is the same cultural group who produced Sodom and Gomorrah and Abraham had said that destroyed. They thought, well, hopefully they'll get the message. But then again, they went all the way down to Sodom and Gomorrah once. That's probably inevitable. They're going to slide down again. And so in the prophecy to Abraham, God is pointing out they'll be back there in 400 years' time. And so when the Israelites are ready to invade the promised land, they will be simultaneously fulfilling this other task of being the agents of judgment upon the Amorites. That's planning ahead. And God knew that the Jews were going to be off to Egypt for 400 years, way before Abraham's descendants went there. And I wonder, when they got that word from God, did they really seriously think, what's happening? We're going to go, does it make sense? We're here. We're going to end up in Egypt for 400 years. I wonder how seriously they took that prediction. And at this stage in history, when they got the prediction, they weren't actually a nation. They were just a big family. And think about that. How amazing it is that just this family becomes a nation in a foreign country. How did they avoid assimilating? You know, refugees and immigrants become Australians in the schoolyard within six months to a year, the kids do. Somehow, this family maintained a national identity through 400 years as refugees, albeit on some the best land in Egypt. And when they left eventually, they left with heaps of money. They left with a golden handshake. Genesis 15, 14. But I'll punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. That's what actually happened in history. It was spoken about 400 years earlier. The Bible's amazing. So I think Joseph saw by faith something of God's bigger picture here being worked out through all the setbacks that he faced. Think of his comment when eventually, after going through it all, he gets reunited with his brothers, calms them down and he tells them this. Genesis 45, 5. It was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. And verse 8, it was not you who sent me here, but God. So for everyone who's ever asked, why is this happening to me? I offer you the example of Joseph. 
It's never mentioned that he asked that question. Why is this happening to me? Because I think he was nourished by the promise that he'd received from God in his dreams. But I also think he was a man of honour who never lost sight of where he came from. You know, when he had kids, he gave them Hebrew names. The Egyptians had given him an Egyptian name, but he was able to name his kids the names he wanted to give them. And so Genesis 41, we'll see what his kids were called. Genesis 41, verse 50. Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by Asenath, daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, it's because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. And the second he named Ephraim and said, it's because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. And interesting to note, Joseph has two sons and they become two of the tribes of Israel. So he gets the double portion, as twice as, uh, produces twice as much as his other brothers. But we're here to look at the significance of their names for clues about how do we do what Joseph did, handle the setbacks of life. And the first son in name Manasseh, forgetting all your trouble. And that meaning of, of the word to forget is like evaporation. It's like forgetting due to the evaporation of the memory, just the way water evaporates on a hot day. Or the way the principal on a loan evaporates due to interest paid. And Joseph in naming Manasseh is showing that he has been healed from all those things, those injustices per perpetrated against him. Don't, don't think it was because he didn't get upset, though, at the time. Reuben reminded his brothers of what Joseph's reaction was when they threw him down in the water system. Look at Genesis 42, 21 to see. They said to one another, surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life. So he was, well, I suppose I could say squealing like a pig when they threw him in there. He, he was really distressed, wasn't he? But we would not listen. And that's why this distress has come upon us. Oh yes, Joseph pleaded for his life. He knew he was in deep trouble. And I don't know how your problems compare with Joseph's. Have you ever been human trafficked? Have you ever been on the very edge of being murdered? Have you ever been completely disowned by your family? Considered dead to them? Have you been unjustly framed for adultery? Have you been put in jail with an open-ended sentence and no right to a retrial? Somehow, Joseph learned how to forget his past troubles. He learned how to build a bridge and get over it. He learned how to not be defined by his past. And I believe he did it by living according to his character and not according to his circumstances. He lived according to his character, not his circumstances. He was the same responsible, righteous, God-fearing man when his family rejected his dreams. And think about it, they're actually God's words, so his family is rejecting the word of God. 
He was the same responsible, righteous man when he was a slave in Potiphar's house and showed himself so responsible and capable that Potiphar put him in charge of managing all his estate. He was the same character, was the same when as a prisoner in the special prison for Pharaoh's criminals, because he was in a particular prison. Uh, he showed himself to be so responsible and capable that the head jailer put him in charge of running the prison. He was the same living out of his character when he gave God the credit for interpreting the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker when he was in jail. That was in Genesis 48. Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. And when through interpreting Pharaoh's dream, he showed himself to be discerning and wise and followed on to show himself so responsible and capable that he could manage the whole country of Egypt for Pharaoh. And he was made second in command after Pharaoh. And if you follow that story through there, you'll see that due to the famine, eventually Pharaoh ended up owning all the land, ended up owning all the animals in Egypt. And after that, he introduced income tax, 20% from all the residents except for the priests. And so it's very clear that Joseph didn't wallow in, oh, poor me, I've been hard done by life. You don't know what I had to go through. Oh, maybe this time it'll work out. Oh, it's just one thing after another. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Well, I believe an important clue for being able to forget your troubles, for being able to let the past evaporate, is seen in the name of the second son, Ephraim. Ephraim means being fruitful in the land of your suffering. Joseph worked hard at being fruitful in the land of his suffering. He got stuck into what he could do in working within the limitations of being a slave, of being in jail, and he made the best of it. He didn't just say, I will survive this or I'll just cope the best I can. No, he went to the next level of saying, how can I be fruitful here? How can I bring added value to this situation? How can I improve things here? He looked at his situation, at what was going on, and he didn't feel powerless, and he didn't feel undermanned, and he didn't feel outgunned. He looked until he could found something he could do, and he went for it. And from all worldly viewpoints, Joseph ended up overcoming all his setbacks and actually having it pretty good in Egypt. He could have called himself a self-made man, so let's see from Genesis 41, 41, what's going on. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Well, he was in jail in the morning. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in his own new Technicolor dream coat, I suppose. A robe for fine linen, put a gold chain around his neck. And then there's more. He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command and people before him shouted, make way, make way. And thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. And Pharaoh said, well, I'm Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift hand or foot in all Egypt. That was a pretty darn good reversal with some pretty amazing perks, including a wife and kids. But Joseph still called 
it the land of his suffering. For the time being in Egypt was the gestation period for the nation. But it still wasn't the promised land. It was still in the land of his suffering. And it reminds us that no matter what our situation in life is, we are all in the land of suffering until Christ returns and reconstructs a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem and we get to be with him. Until then, we are stuck in between this world and the next. And like Joseph, our task is to live out of our character and not out of our circumstances. To let the painful memories of tough times evaporate and to seek to be fruitful in the land of our suffering. The early church leader Stephen mentioned Joseph in his final sermon and he said in Acts 7 verse 9, but God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. And it would be really comforting if we could say this morning, this was our message for us. No matter what you're going through or you have gone through, God will rescue you from all of your troubles. But you can't say that because we've got Hebrews chapter of all the believers who are persecuted for their faith and none of it their fault. But I do believe that if you can see the bigger picture like Joseph did, if you can understand that bigger than me having a safe and comfortable life is God's desire for as many as possible in the whole human history to become believers, if we can get a bigger perspective, then maybe you can come to the same mature view which the Apostle Paul came to when he wrote to his fellow believers in Corinth. He said, in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16 to 18, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. This is tough to say now, for our light and momentary troubles. Oh, you ever read what happened to Paul? How many times he got the, in the trouble? He's saying, no, I've got bigger perspective. I see these things as light and momentary troubles, and they are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And so we fix our eyes on what, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And that's the bigger picture. That's the channel to tune on the big screen TV in your mind to. Fix your eyes on what is not seen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. All human history, God's involved. He has a long-range plan. And it's the story of God finding a way for hurting, disobedient and blind people to enter his heavenly family and be part of the family. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we pause for you before you in this moment to just think, let it sink in. Our life is an important part of a history of people becoming part of your family. 
And it's so encouraging to be part of this big story. We're not, as the people of the world would try and tell us, uh, a random set of chemicals came here by chance. We are part of your story, your history of salvation. And so we reaffirm again our trust in you, Lord Jesus, forgive us our trespasses, forgive us our sins, forgive us the things that get in the, between us and you. We put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, crucified for us on the cross to take away our sins. And we look forward with hope to the eternity with God, to the new heavens and the new earth, to a glory which is just unimaginably good. And we give you praise in humility and thankfulness and worship. Amen.